In the center, Longstreet had massed his main striking force, three divisions containing a total of eight brigades ranging five lines deep. Up front was Bushrod Johnson's division, two brigades up, one in reserve. The whole center attacking column was under the command of Hood, one of the hardest-hitting commanders in the Army of Northern Virginia. At 11.10 a.m., on the orders of Longstreet, Johnson's Tennesseans started up the east side of the Brotherton Ridge in to launch the assault. Surprised, outnumbered, and flanked on both sides, Davis's Union Division went to pieces. The rampaging Southerners next caught the trailing brigade of Woods' withdrawing division and wrecked it before it could get clear of the gap it had left. North of the gap, Brannon's division found itself assailed in, in flank and rear, but resisted stoutly for a time before giving way and joining the rapidly developing route. Johnson's men, still leading the Confederate assaults, plunged ahead through the woods behind the Brotherton farm, then burst out into the open fields of the Dyer farm and one of the most incredible panoramas of the entire war. The open space was perhaps 500 yards deep and about 1,200 wide, rimmed with hills on its far side to form a natural amphitheater. And it was the rear area of the Army of the, of the Cumberland, now an indescribable scene of panic and confusion, as the shattered remnants of three broken Federal brigades fled m- madly through the tangled reserve units, artillery, baggage, and supply trains, and headquarters of personnel. To Johnson, quote, the scene now presented was unmistakably grand. The resolute and impetuous charge, the rush of heavy columns sweeping out from the shadow and gloom of the forest into the open fields flooded with sunlight. The glitter of arms, the outward dash of artillery, the mounted men, the retreat of the foe, the shouts of the hosts of the army, the dust, the smoke, the noise of firearms, of the whistling balls and grape shot, and the bursting shell made up a battle scene of unsurpassed grandeur. Welcome to episode 10 of my Leaders of the Civil War podcast. This one is uh, part one of our discussion of James Longstreet. And what we just heard was an excerpt from Six Armies in Tennessee by Stephen E. Woodworth. General James Longstreet was in command for many dramatic Confederate victories, but to me, Chickamauga, the one we just read about, is the most stunning. It nearly destroyed the Union Army of the Cumberland. It ruined the career of Union General Rosecrans. In fact, it almost got him and Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana captured, and it made the career of Union General George Thomas, also known as the Rock of Chickamauga. James Longstreet was one of the foremost Confederate generals in the American Civil War and primary subordinate to Robert E. Lee, who called him, quote, my old warhorse." unquote. He served under Lee as first corps commander for most of the battles fought by the Army of Northern Virginia in the Eastern Theater and briefly with Braxton Bragg in the Army of Tennessee in the Western Theater. However, After Robert E. Lee died in 1870, a group of former Confederate leaders started a narrative we commonly call the Lost Cause, and Longstreet became political public enemy number one of the people pushing this theory. 
The Lost Cause is an inter- interpretation of the American Civil War viewed by most historians as a myth that attempts to preserve the honor of the South by casting the Confederate deep defeat in the best possible light. Now, I grew up in Mississippi in the 1970s and 80s, and even then the Lost Cause mytho- mythology was still a part of the cultural landscape. So what do we know about the Lost Cause narrative? There's a lot more to it than I could ad- adequately share in a podcast, but in summary, it's an alternative history that attempts to paint the antebellum South as this wonderful place where the races, black and white, got along in perfect harmony. It got started in the years after Robert E. Lee died and may have hit its apex in the 1930s with the publication of Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell. The idea is that the Civil War was a war of northern aggression in which invading hordes from the north came south like the Vikings and destroyed a way of life that was being embraced by all. That the South's attempt to expand and perpetuate slavery was not the cause of secession and war, that instead secession was a right granted to all states in the U.S. Constitution and the North had no right to interfere. Nevertheless, at the center of it all, lost cause advocates believe the South lost their way of life and lost the war at the Battle of Gettysburg. Further, that General James Longstreet was the cause of this loss at Gettysburg. And we're going to talk a bit about uh, that battle in this episode. Now also, after the war, Longstreet was an outspoken supporter of Reconstruction and Reconciliation, which made him quite unpopular. But Lost Cause advocates did not push this idea until after Lee uh, Lee died, perhaps because they knew he would have told them they were crazy. Lee and Longstreet were very close, especially during the war, as Longstreet was Lee's most trusted advisor and subordinate. Now, Longstreet was a senior commander in many battles, uh, pretty much all the battles of the uh, Eastern Theater, including Seven Pines, Seven Days Battles, Second Bull Run, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Gettysburg, Chickamauga, Knoxville, and the Wilderness Campaign. Now, of these battles, historians say he performed superbly, except in Seven Pines, in Knoxville, which was probably a real stinker for him, and Gettysburg. Now, that one is controversial because historians who are lost cause advocates, as we mentioned earlier, generally say Gettysburg was Longstreet's worst battle. However, according to most of the recent and more objective historians, we actually he actually performed remarkably well in this battle. mentioned earlier that I grew up in Mississippi. Well, believe it or not, I actually attended a gathering at my university when I was a freshman in which historians were invited to speak on the topic of Longstreet's performance at Gettysburg. I was not a history major. In fact, I was uh, just an engineering major, but I had always heard the Confederate failure at Gettysburg was Longstreet's fault, and I wanted to hear what the historians had to say about it. I came in expecting them to agree unanimously that Longstreet was the villain who had lost the battle for Lee, because I was living in the South at the time. Uh, Instead, they said just the opposite. 
They all agreed that it was General Lee who made the grave errors at Gettysburg that cost the Confederates the battle and not General Longstreet. To those who grew up in the South, thinking Lee was, you know, maybe a deity who could do no wrong, uh, that was a heresy. Even today, if you go on YouTube, you'll find plenty of people who believe Longstreet failed the Confederacy at Gettysburg. But generally speaking, those are in the minority now. Now, criticisms of Longstreet's performance at Gettysburg include the following. They say that Longstreet should have attacked much earlier in the day, both on the 2nd and the 3rd of July. They say that he was sulking and insubordinate to Lee because he did not agree with Lee's offensive approach to the battle. I believe the truth is that many Southerners looking for a scapegoat for Gettysburg turned on Longstreet and General Jeb Stuart because they could not imagine Lee having made such grave errors. And since Jeb Stuart was killed a year later in 1864, uh, many chose to turn their guns and wrath on James Longstreet after the war. So let's talk a little bit about the Gettysburg Battle. On the first day of the battle, July 1st, 1863, the Confederates had stumbled upon two Union Corps in Gettysburg and pretty much destroyed them north of Gettysburg. However, their remnants and the rest of the Union Army under General George Meade came in from the east and they occupied the best ground, which was in the shape of a fishhook, starting at Culp's Hill, south to Cemetery Ridge, and then to the Round Tops. After the success of the first day, Lee believed, quote, a battle thus became in a measure unavoidable. Encouraged by the successful issue of the engagement of the first day and in view of the valuable results that would ensue from the defeat of the army of General Meade, it was thought advisable to renew the attack, unquote. Lee knew the terrible weapon he commanded. A few weeks before, he had asserted in a letter that, quote, the country cannot overestimate its, the army's, worth. There never were such men in any army before and never can be again. If properly led, they will go anywhere and never fail at the work before them, unquote. Now, Longstreet believed he had Lee's commitment to the tactical defensive once he got into Pennsylvania, but Lee had now switched over to the offensive after the success of July 1st. Longstreet was against the offensive. Instead, he wanted to duplicate Fredericksburg and 2nd Manassas, not the bloody assaults of Chancellorsville or Malvern Hill, which resulted in huge Confederate losses with very little gained. Unfortunately for for Lee, early on the 2nd, he got some really bad intelligence that convinced him his army had an opportunity to strike the Union flank and roll it up towards Gettysburg. This was definitely not the case, and instead the Union army held the heights in convincing fashion. From historian Jeffrey Wirt. From history's perspective, Longstreet was right. At Gettysburg, the Federals held, in Porter Alexander's opinion, a, quote, wonderfully strong position that could never have been successfully assaulted, unquote. Lee was committed to the offensive and refused to listen to alternative proposals. Like his men, Lee professed supreme confidence in his generalship and believed in the Army's invincibility. As Alexander noted, he, quote, never paid his soldiers a higher compliment than in what he gave them to do at Gettysburg, unquote. But the difficulties of such a movement were evident, and without the cavalry of Jeb Stuart 
probably insurmountable. You may recall from our Custer episodes that the rebel cavalry under General Jeb Stuart was off on a long raid around the Federals and was not available to do their job at Gettysburg. Now we'll skip to July 2nd, where late in the day on the 2nd, Longstreet, after much maneuvering and countermaneuvering due to some bad intelligence and perhaps because of his delaying, finally got his two divisions under McClaws and Hood positioned to attack at the place Lee had instructed him on the left flank of the Union Army. However, instead of seeing the naked enemy flank they expected to see, his men saw, quote, brigades of blue-coated infantry backed by batteries of cannon stretched from the peach orchard to near Little Round Top. Behind them, additional Federal unions, units were marching across the fields to extend the line northward from the peach orchard along the Emmitsburg Road, unquote. Longstreet knew now for sure what he believed all along, which was that this was going to be a very bloody day without much gained. But at this point, his duty was to follow orders, so he began to send wave after wave of Confederate brigades into echelon attack on the Union position there. Only Union General Dan Sickles' blunder in creating a surprise salient at the peach order in the wheat field gave the rebels a chance they should not have had. Historian James McPherson writes, Sickles' unwise move had foiled Lee's hopes. Finding the Union left in an unexpected position, Longstreet probably should have notified Lee. Scouts reported that the roundtops were unoccupied, opening the way for a flanking move around the Union rear. Longstreet's division commanders urged a a change of attack plans to take advantage of this opportunity, but Longstreet had already tried at least twice to change Lee's mind. He did not want to risk another rebuff. Lee had repeatedly ordered him to attack here, and he meant to attack. At 4 p.m., his brigade started forward in echelon from right to left. From Jeffrey Wirt, quote, I could hear bones crash like glass in a hailstorm, unquote, wrote a rebel six days later. The Union artillery was merciless, but the Southerners kept coming. Quote, I never saw troops move more steadily and in better order than the, these did on that occasion, unquote, remembered a colonel. Quote, there was no wavering, disorder, or want of confidence on the part of the troops, unquote. Six times the triangular-shaped wheat field changed hands. The rebels, quote, did all men can do, unquote, a Georgian told his wife afterwards. From James McPherson, during the next few hours, some of the war's bloodiest fighting took place in the peach orchard, in the wheat field, to the east of the orchard, at the Devil's Den, and on Little Round Top. Longstreet's 15,000 yelling veterans punched through the salient with attacks that shattered Sickle's leg and crushed the undersized core. But with skillful tactics, Lee, or Meade, and his subordinates rushed reinforcements from three other corps to uh, plug the brakes. The most desperate struggle occurred on Longstreet's front, where the two Union regiments at separated, separated points of the combat zone, the 20th Maine and the 1st Minnesota, achieved lasting fame by throwing back Confederate attacks that came dangerously close to breakthroughs. 
Posted at the far left of the brigade was the 20th Maine, commanded by Colonel Joshua L. Chamberlain. A year earlier, Chamberlain had been a professor of rhetoric at, of, in modern languages at Bowdoin College. Now, with more than a third of his men down and the remainder out of ammunition, Chamberlain was in a tight spot. He ordered his men to fix bayonets on their empty rifles and charge. The Alabamians under Hood surrendered by, by scores to the jubilant boys from Maine. Little Round Top remained in northern hands. Longstreet's casualties exceeded 4,000, including William Barksdale and Paul Sims, both mortally wounded, and John Bell Hood, who was badly wounded in the arm as well. By the end of the day, he had watched his two divisions fight magnificently, only to suffer heavy losses in an attack he never wanted. Many believe July 2nd, 1863, and not the 3rd, was the pivotal day of Gettysburg. The Army of Northern Virginia nearly achieved a victory, but in the end, the Union's interior lines and the rebels' faulty intelligence doomed that effort. Now let's talk about July the 3rd. We know the 3rd was more the same, but on a grander scale, because Lee ordered Longstreet to take 14,000 men and attack the center of the Union line on Cemetery Hill. This uh, came to be known as Pickett's Charge, but we, we also know it included men from the, the divisions of Generals Trimble and Pettigrew, from Jeffrey Wirt. Confederate General James Kemper recounted the following in a post-war letter about Longstreet prior to the attack on the 3rd during the artillery bombardment. Quote, While this was going on, Longstreet rode slowly and alone immediately in front of our entire line. He sat his large charger with a magnificent grace and composure I never before beheld. His bearing was to me the grandest moral spectacle of the war. I expected to see him fall every instant. Still, he moved on slowly and majestically with an inspiring confidence, composure, self-possession, and repressed power in every movement. And look, that fascinated me, unquote. I don't want to make this attack, Longstreet said slowly to Alexander, to Porter Alexander, looking at the enemy through his field glasses. Quote, I believe it will fail. I do not see how it can succeed. I would not make it even now, but General Lee has ordered it and expects it, unquote. Alexander said later he thought that if he had encouraged the general, the attack would, not, would have been stopped. But Longstreet stated in his report that, quote, the order for the attack, which I could not favor under better auspices, would have been revoked had I felt that I had that privilege, unquote. This was the time now that Pickett's men were clearing the batteries, marching as if on review, accompanied by music from a band, Pickett's favorite hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. In Kemper's words, quote, I never saw men march more steadily up to their work than our line, unquote, affirmed an officer of the 8th Virginia. British observer Colonel Fremantle joined Longstreet, bubbling that he would not have missed this for anything. Quote, the devil you wouldn't, barked Longstreet. I would have liked to have missed it very much. We've attacked and been repulsed. Look there, unquote. The assault was magnificent and doomed. Perhaps half the attack force was either killed, wounded, or captured. Quote, we gained nothing but glory, 
unquote, asserted a, a Virginian, quote, and we lost our bravest men, unquote. Of 52 Confederate generals, 17, or almost one-third, fell in the battle, including Armistead and Garnett, killed in the assault, and Tremble and Kemper seriously wounded. Lee's losses probably reached 30% of his army. While fighting on the defensive, George Meade's Federals suffered roughly 23,000 casualties also. Lee, as was his uh, magnanimous habit, faulted himself. He wrote to President Jefferson Davis on July 31st, quote, No blame can be attached to this army for its failure to accomplish what was projected by me. I am alone to blame in perhaps expecting too much of its prowess and valor, unquote. It was an honest and accurate evaluation. The Confederates stumbled into an unwanted battle at Gettysburg, and after the first day's results, Lee chose an audacious course, relying on his splendid infantry to achieve victory. Longstreet told Uncle Augustus that he, quote, would prefer that all the blame should rest upon me. As General Lee is our commander, he should have the support and influence, all the support and influence we can give him, unquote. The tr- quote, the truth will be known in time, unquote, he added, quote, and I leave that to show how much of the responsibility of Gettysburg rests on my shoulders, unquote. After Lee died, many in the South started blaming Longstreet for the loss at Gettysburg, and Longstreet took it personally. In fact, he wrote a memoir very late in life that was meant to clap back on his post-war critics. Instead, it made him come off as bitter and didn't really help matters. Porter Alexander was probably Longstreet's best apologist. Alexander contended in a post-war letter that, quote, Longstreet's great mistake was not in, in the war, but in some of his awkward and apparently bitter criticisms of General Lee and his own books, unquote. Alexander believed that Longstreet's conduct and behavior at Gettysburg uh, could be vindicated. Quote, It is true that he, Longstreet, obeyed reluctantly at Gettysburg on the 2nd and on the 3rd, but it must be admitted that his judgment in both matters was sound and he owed it to Lee to be reluctant, for failure was inevitable to it soon or do it later either day. Unquote. Long after the war, In the early 20th century, a former rebel soldier said the following in a newspaper interview when asked about the attacks on Longstreet by the so-called Lost Cause advocates. Quote, all these damnable lies about Longstreet make me want to shoulder a musket and fight another war. They originated in politics and have been told by men not fit to untie his shoestrings. We soldiers on the firing line knew There was no greater fighter in the whole Confederate Army than Longstreet. I am proud that I fought under him here. I know that Longstreet did not fail Lee at Gettysburg or anywhere else. I'll defend him as long as I live. Now tune in for episode 11 in which we will talk about Longstreet's early life and his experience in the Mexican War.